Last week we began looking together at the book of Ezekiel. And we left Ezekiel at the end of our time last week lying flat on his face. Why was he in that position? Because he had just seen the glory of the Lord. The beginning of chapter 1 in Ezekiel, and if you're looking for a page number, you'll find our passage in page 831. The beginning of chapter 1 gave us the setting of the book. Ezekiel, he told us, was by the Kebar River in Babylon. He was one of the thousands of Israelites who'd been taken into exile by the Babylonians. And in that foreign place, Ezekiel told us the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And last week we looked at Ezekiel's description of what he saw. It was a vision of the Lord on his chariot throne. It was a vision of transcendent, active majesty. And it left Ezekiel flat on his face. Ezekiel has been shown a glimpse of heavenly realities. And now he's ready for some insight into earthly realities. That's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. In essence, God is saying here, I've given you a glimpse of ultimate reality, Ezekiel. You've seen something of my glory and my majesty. You've seen that I'm in control. You've seen that nothing is outside of my reach. Now, Ezekiel, let me tell you about another reality. And this is one that's going to confront you every day. Ezekiel needed the vision of ultimate heavenly reality before he was ready to face this other earthly reality. So we pick up this morning in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll read through to chapter 3, verse 15. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. 
And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels beside them. A loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Abib near the Kebar River. And there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, overwhelmed. This is God's word. If last week's passage showed us the vision we need to see, our passage this morning contains the call we need to hear. We'll try to understand what God is saying to Ezekiel here, and then we'll ask what application this might have to us. First of all, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, God talks to Ezekiel about earthly realities. He says, I am sending you to the rebellious, the obstinate, and the stubborn. Look again at verse 3. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. And the contents of the Old Testament show the truth of God's words here. Way back in the book of Genesis, God had chosen Abraham to be the father of a special people. Eventually, Abraham's descendants went down to live in Egypt to escape a famine. And they had initially been welcomed in Egypt. But as they grew in numbers, the Egyptians began to see them as a threat. Eventually, Abraham's descendants were enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. But through Moses, you know the story, God brought them out of Egypt. God showed his awesome power to them by parting the Red Sea. 
But three days after seeing and experiencing that awesome power, the Israelites began to rebel. They continued to rebel for generations. And eventually, their rebellion landed them here in Babylon. Thousands of them exiled from their homeland. And now God is calling Ezekiel to be his spokesman, spokesman to these rebels in exile. Verse 4, he's to say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. But you'll notice that God gives Ezekiel no guarantees that the people are going to listen to him. What he does say in verse 5 is that whether they listen or fail to listen, they will know that a prophet has been among them. According to the Old Testament, the sign of a true prophet was that his words came true. So the only guarantee God is giving Ezekiel is that eventually, when what he says comes true, the people will know that Ezekiel really was speaking the truth to them. God gives no guarantee that these people will heed the message. Does this have any application for us? Well, there's something significant hidden away in verse 3. God refers to the Israelites as a nation. The word God uses is found throughout the Old Testament. And it refers to the nations around Israel. It's a word that Jews today use to refer to non-Jews, Gentiles. But here, God uses the word to refer to Israel. What's the significance of that? Well, the point is, God is referring to Israel here as just another rebellious nation. In fact, in his whole speech to Ezekiel, God never once refers to Israel as my people. God's description of Israel here is a description that applies to all nations. Israel here is a little miniature version of the world in rebellion against God. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus sent his disciples out among all nations. They were to be his witnesses. They were to carry his message to the nations. And when we looked at that passage just about three weeks ago, we said that today you and I are called to be witnesses. Jesus continues his work through us as we talk about him to our family and our friends. And here, as we listen to God's call to Ezekiel, we're learning something about those we're called to witness to. They are the rebellious, the obstinate, and the stubborn. I'm not suggesting for a moment that our family, our friends, and our work colleagues are nasty. I'm not suggesting they're unkind or rude. Some of them might be, but many of them are pleasant, easygoing people. They do not give the appearance of being rebellious, obstinate, and stubborn. But the thing for us to grasp is that in his call to Ezekiel, God is not talking primarily about external things. He's talking about people's hearts. Someone can listen to us very politely They can even nod their heads and smile. 
our attempts at witnessing to them can be met with ever so nice responses. But behind those nice responses is a heart that's rebellious, obstinate, and stubborn towards God. It's one thing to respond politely when someone talks about Jesus. It's another thing entirely to get down on your knees, ask his forgiveness, and worship him as the Lord. Some of the most polite people are the most stubbornly resistant to bowing their knee. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can think of relatives or friends who are in no way nasty when you talk about Jesus. But neither will they budge an inch toward accepting Jesus. And when you or I are faced with that, it's very easy for us to think, well, I'm obviously not explaining it properly. If I was, they would accept what I'm saying. They're nice, reasonable people. The problem must be with me. Now, it's very possible the problem does lie with you or with me. It's possible that you're not being clear about Jesus. It's possible there's some hypocrisy in your life that's just drowning out your words, putting people off Jesus. That's always possible. And we should always be asking ourselves how we can improve our witness. But it's also possible that you are doing everything right. Your explanation of the gospel is spot on. Your life is backing up your message wonderfully. So then why don't they respond? Because deep in their hearts, they're rebellious, obstinate, and stubborn towards God. This rebellion has been part of the human race since Genesis chapter 3. The situation at the beginning of Genesis 3 was that the first man and woman were living under God's authority. And within that framework, everything worked. Nature was thriving. The man and woman thrived. They had purpose. They had no shame. Their relationship with each other was whole. But then the serpent came and said to Eve, you could have more than this. Reject God's authority. Eat the fruit that he told you not to eat. And you will be your own God. You will decide what's right and wrong. You know the rest of the story. Eve liked the idea. Adam liked it too. And ever since then, we've all liked it. We're all born wanting to rule our own lives. We want to be the captain of our own ship. We refuse to recognize God's authority over us. We might be ever so polite rebels, but we're rebels all the same. And maybe you can recognize this in yourself. Maybe you would say that religion and the church are okay up to a point. But when it comes to the question of authority... You're staying very firmly on the throne of your own life. And yet the Bible explains that by staying in that position, you're closing yourself off from the life you were created to live. A life that's whole. The first step to wholeness is to recognize that you're rebellious, obstinate, and stubborn. 
And that it's going to bring you nothing but sorrow in the long run. But then when we do lay down our arms and come to God for mercy, then we hear God's call to go and be his witnesses. And we have to remember that we're not witnessing to men and women who are neutral. We're witnessing to sons and daughters and parents and neighbors who are at heart rebels against God. No matter if they go about their rebellion in ever such a polite way. So then if we understand all this, if we're God's people called to be God's witnesses in this world, what's our responsibility in the face of these earthly realities? Well, look what God goes on to say to Ezekiel. Now he sets out the messenger's responsibility. Do not fear. Do not rebel. Eat my words and speak my words. Verse 6. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid. Though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them though they are a rebellious house. The implication here is that the rebels Ezekiel is being sent to may not turn out to be the polite kind of rebels. As he shares God's message, he might feel like he's living among briars, thorns, and scorpions. But God says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Three times in this one verse. What is it that would keep Ezekiel from being afraid? Well, remember chapter 1. Now we know why the vision of God came before the call of God. The thing that will keep Ezekiel from fear is his vision of the Lord on his throne. The man or woman who has grasped something of the transcendent, active majesty of God, that person is ready to face a few human briars, thorns, and scorpions. If our vision of God is big and clear, then what have we to fear here on earth? Then God says to Ezekiel, don't be a rebel yourself. Verse 7, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Even as a man set apart for God, Ezekiel has to fight against his own tendency to rebel against God. His tendency to refuse to listen to God. To turn away from God's call on his life. But then look what Ezekiel is to do instead of rebelling. Verse 8 again. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. 
Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. The first thing to remember is that this is a vision. Ezekiel is still describing the vision that began in chapter 1. It's as part of his vision that the hand reaches out and gives him a scroll. It's as part of the vision that God says, eat the scroll. But first, the hand unrolls the scroll. And Ezekiel sees writing on both sides of it. In other words, the scroll is full. There's no space left on it. Nothing else can be added to the scroll. The point is, it's not for you, Ezekiel, to add to what I give you. The message I'm giving you is complete. You're not to adjust it. You don't have the responsibility of trying to improve it. Then Ezekiel says the words on both sides were words of lament and mourning and woe. The message on this scroll is not a very palatable message. It's a disturbing message. Three times God told Ezekiel not to be afraid. Now three times he tells him to eat the scroll. Fill your stomach with it, God says. What's the significance of this? Well, when we eat something, it becomes part of us. God is calling Ezekiel to be filled and nourished with his word. He's to digest God's word. He's to make it a part of him. He's not just to carry it around. And we're going to see in weeks to come that Ezekiel, more than any other prophet, embodies the message that he speaks. Ezekiel's life becomes the message that he speaks. Of course, God could have just said, Ezekiel, I don't just want you to be familiar with my words. I don't just want you to carry them around under your arm. I want you to digest them and internalize them. I want you to eat them until they become part of you or read them until they become part of you. God could just have said that. But this is a much more memorable way to do it. Ezekiel will not forget this. And hopefully we won't forget it either. We've already noticed that what God has given Ezekiel to eat is not an attractive meal. For one thing, the message is bitter. Words of lament, mourning, and woe. For another thing, can you imagine eating a scroll? We're not talking here about the kind of smooth paper that you have in your Bible. We're not even talking about the kind of paper that goes into your computer printer. Maybe we could imagine choking that down with some salt and pepper. But this is papyrus. It's basically dried reeds stuck together and rolled up. This is not going to slide down easily. But God says, eat it. And Ezekiel reports for us in verse 3, So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. A few moments ago we thought about Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit back in Eden. 
In that passage, we were told, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. The food the serpent offered her looked great, but it turned sour the moment it passed her lips. Everything started to fall apart. Everything started to break. The man and woman were alienated from God. They were alienated from each other. They were alienated even from the ground that they relied on for their crops. But here Ezekiel's experience is in direct contrast to Adam and Eve's experience. The food that God holds out to Ezekiel is anything but pleasing to the eye. And it does not appear to be good for food. Its shape and its content are not attractive. But when Ezekiel obediently eats the scroll, he finds it to be as sweet as honey in his mouth. What's the point? Well, very simply, we've already seen that deep down we're all born rebels. God's word is unattractive and unpalatable to rebels. It tells us that we are in the wrong. It tells us that we owe obedience to God. It tells us we'll come to ruin if we carry on trying to run our own lives. And we don't want to hear that. We certainly don't want to digest that message. We don't want to make it a part of us. But when we do, we find that it's as sweet as honey. It's what we wanted all along. Why do we ever resist it? Why do we push it away for so long? The prophet Jeremiah had the same experience as Ezekiel. He said to God, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. If we will eat the word God has given us, the Bible, if we will not just read it, but if we will embrace it and digest it, if we'll make its message a part of us, we'll find that it turns out to be sweet for us too. It heals our brokenness. It gives us life. At this point, Ezekiel has eaten his meal. He's full up with God's word. And now God says to him, go and tell these people, pass on what I have given to you. Verse 4. He said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to, those of, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified of them, though they are a rebellious house. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. 
God says, I'm not sending you to people who don't understand you. There's no communication barrier here. No, verse 7 says, the reason they're not willing to listen to you, Ezekiel, is because they're not willing to listen to me. They're hardened and obstinate. They're rebels. And notice again, God gives Ezekiel no guarantees that the people are going to listen. In verse 11, God says, Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. And here, listen has the sense of heed. It doesn't just mean to stand there and hear someone out until they're done. It means to hear them and obey. Sometimes we get the idea that if we just press the right buttons in the right combination, we can bring people to faith in God. So if we just give them the right book, or if we take them to the right speaker, or if the church will just put on the right program, we can produce the right response. And certainly, as we said before, we always want to be getting clearer in what we say. We want our lives to increasingly be backing up what we say. We want the things we do in church to be the best they can be. But the Bible never promises that if we get our presentation right, we're guaranteed results. In that sense, our calling is the same as Ezekiel's. We are called to be faithful and obedient regardless of results. We don't serve because we are getting good results. We serve because we have a vision of the Lord on his throne. Who wouldn't serve a glorious God like that? That's why we serve. Results are God's business. And they're not an accurate measure of faithfulness. You may have been witnessing to a family member for decades. Whether they reject the message or accept it says nothing about your faithfulness or your lack of faithfulness. Not only are there no guarantees about results, there is also a cost to this call from God. Ezekiel has been given an awesome experience. He's been given a sight of God on his chariot throne. He's been given a call to service delivered by God himself. Ezekiel has tasted the sweetness of God's word. But he doesn't get to stay in the world of the vision. Ezekiel has to go now and live in a world where God's glory is not visible to the human eye. He's being sent to take God's message to stubborn rebels. That's his calling. And look what happens next in verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kebar River and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days overwhelmed. 
The glimpse of heaven is gone now. Ezekiel is back among his own people. And his state of mind is not good. He's bitter and angry and overwhelmed. What's the problem? The problem is that Ezekiel is back among his own people. But he will never again truly fit in among his own people. He's physically back where he was at the start of chapter 1. He's among his countrymen by the Kebar River. But Ezekiel is not the same person he was at the start of chapter 1. He's now a man motivated by divine heavenly realities. His view of the world is different. Ezekiel will never fit in again. The messenger's experience is that he's a stranger among his own people. Where did his bitterness and anger come from? It could be he's beginning to share some of God's anger at the sin and rebellion of Israel. It could be that Ezekiel is sensing a bit of the rebel in himself. He's struggling to deal with the fact that he doesn't fit in anymore. Maybe he's dreading the briars and thorns and scorpions he's going to get from his family. His former friends. Maybe he fears that they will turn against him. The text doesn't tell us what's troubling Ezekiel. I suspect it's a combination of the things I just mentioned. But in any case, he sits there for seven days overwhelmed. And some of you know what this feels like. You've had a life-changing meeting with God... Now his word is sweet to you. His commands are life to you. And it's also true that people you used to feel at home with now feel like strangers to you. You just don't see the world in the same way anymore. You're not living for the same things anymore. You don't fit in anymore. And it can be overwhelming. Maybe you've become a Christian and your spouse hasn't. There's a new barrier between you. It's not because of anything either of you has done. It's because you're now operating in two different worlds. One dominated by the reality of God and one assuming the irrelevance of God. Maybe for the same reason you feel a distance from a brother or sister. A son or daughter, maybe a parent. Does this passage have any encouragement for us? If we feel overwhelmed by the call to be witnesses, is there anything here to help us? I think there is. You may have noticed the way God refers to Ezekiel. He doesn't call him Ezekiel. He calls him son of man. Eight times in this passage. Ninety-three times in the book as a whole. And in this context, son of man is a way of contrasting Ezekiel and God. God is transcendent and majestic. Ezekiel is a mere man. He's puny compared to God. You may remember that the title Jesus chose for himself was the son of man. 
On Jesus' lips, the title means the one man who is more than just a man. The one man who also has all the power and authority of God. But when God calls Ezekiel son of man, he's highlighting Ezekiel's puniness. But look what God does to this puny human servant. He doesn't just show him a vision of glory. He doesn't just give him orders to obey. He sends his spirit to lift Ezekiel up. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. Then in chapter 3, verse 12, then the Spirit lifted me up. Verse 14, the Spirit then lifted me up. God did not leave this weak son of man to struggle on alone. God sent his Spirit to lift him up. In fact, in the entire Old Testament, the books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah are the books where we hear most about the power of the Spirit of God. Power to bring life where there was only death. Power to change the heart. Power to enable obedience to God. It's no coincidence that we hear most about God's empowering Spirit from two men who are called to be messengers of God among obstinate rebels. God has not given Ezekiel an easy calling. He has given no guarantee of positive results. And there will be a cost for Ezekiel personally. He will feel like a stranger among his own people. But God has not left Ezekiel alone. God's spirit is with him to lift him up. You and I may often feel overwhelmed at the prospect of being witnesses for God. But that's not a bad thing. It's good to realize that we're powerless. And it's good, too, to remember that God has sent his Spirit to lift us up. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that says, Think what Spirit dwells within you. Child of heaven, why should you fret? The spirit within us brings with him all the power of God. Power to sustain us and power to lift us up. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken.